Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you listen to the podcast. I am so excited to share a new friend with you. Her name is Dorianne J. Nicholson. She goes by DJ. She comes all the way from Florida, and she is an inclusive specialist. She owns Inclusiveology. Its mission is to support parents and educators to create inclusive opportunities for every child to learn, engage, and grow. Hey, I'm Sherry Dodder, the occupational therapist and dysgraphia expert here at The Writing Glitch. No pencil required. And how are you doing, DJ? I am good. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's lovely to be here. Before we really get into understanding what inclusivology is, I want to introduce our sponsor. Today's podcast was brought to you by Math Disconnected. To empower autonomy and thinking through five multisensory interventions. This book is coming out later this year, and I'm going to read the an excerpt from the back cover for you. Sherry, that happens to be me, by the way. We didn't get really crazy with our story, but anyway. Sherry from OT knocked at the door, interrupting Mr. Grapner's math lesson. It was time to take Tanisha, that Jamaican girl, to the class for her two-minute brain break. Brian, he so wanted to impress her with his special talent. He ignored Mr. Grabner and he began creating his origami swan. I challenge you to enter the world of mathematics and occupational therapy through the lens of self-reflection so students can master their own success. Find out how John Lee and I, Sherry, transform the mindset of this math teacher so they can access the minds of his students through interoception, metacognition, perseverance, and consistency that transcends time and unleashes the next generation of leadership in ways he never imagined. We're going to share more about this book in July at the Summer Dyslexia Institute in Dallas, Texas. And the following week, outside Little Rock, Arkansas, at a very small dyslexia school. But if you're interested in learning more about either of those events, they are taking outside people to come and join us. So if you would like more information, you can send me an email at info at sherry.org.com or take a look at the show notes and we will include them in the show notes. So let's get back to this interview with DJ. DJ, what in the world did you, how did you come up with inclusiveology? Tell me more. Inclusiveology is very simply the study of inclusion. And that came to me because I believe in inclusion wholeheartedly. I think it's so important that we do everything we can to in- include children in learning. And so the growth of inclusiveology came to me probably. Three or four years ago, I was working at a local district and I was having a lot of frustrations with children not being included in general education, not being included in academics. And if they were being included, it was for things like lunch and recess and playground and PE and things like that. And they were not children with more significant disabilities, were not having the same opportunities 
as children with that were neurotypical. And so I decided after having some rather difficult conversations with some of my supervisors where I was told to stop focusing on those the 6% of those kids that aren't going to get it, which is what I was told. I and I was told to stay in my lane. I decided that I was in my lane and what I was focused on is what was important to me and it was important to me to grow knowledge of parents, grow the knowledge of teachers and school leadership to really understand what it means to include children in a meaningful way. So what I was seeing and we what we absolutely have to move away from is the idea that we're going to take a child with a more significant disability or any disability and we're going to put them in a classroom and we're going to we're going to teach them the same thing in the same way at the same time as all other students without giving them the supports that they need to be the most successful. Because what was happening is they were being included and it was not working and the school would, air quotes, be doing inclusion and then would come back and say, we tried it and it didn't work. So the foundation truly of inclusiveology is understanding and studying inclusion in a way where schools are incorporating all of the pieces that you need. It's not enough to just have an inclusive schedule. You have to understand what does specially designed instruction look like? How do we target scale deficits? How do we use assistive technology as a classroom support? How do we maximize all of our school staff so kids are really truly getting what they need? And how do we build toolboxes. So teachers and kids and parents have a flexible way of approaching instruction. So truly every child gets included in learning in a way that's meaningful for them. So in a nutshell, that's inclusiveology. I love it, but I'd love an example. So if you have a kiddo with multiple disabilities, wheelchair bound, has an intellectual disability, and you want them in math class, can you share an experience of one of your students that you had success? Absolutely. So I do have a great example of that. He was in the fourth grade. He was going out for, he was, he spent a large amount of his time in a self-contained classroom, but his strength was in math. So he was included for math. And the teacher, and this was this teacher grew by leaps and bounds the year that I coached for her. But her thought of making things inclusive for him was to just make sure that the the walkways and the spaces in between desks were accessible by his wheelchair. And so that was her understanding of making learning accessible. And so, while she was only looking at it from a physical disability standpoint, she was understanding that's a piece of it. A piece of it is the physical access, but then how do we make learning accessible? It's great to start with physical access, but the learning access involved a modified curriculum and understanding that even when you're working with fractions, that there's a way that you can focus on the individual number first 
rather than the entire fraction. You can identify numbers and write out numbers and find the numbers that are greater than and less than as you're working up to that standard of understanding how fractions are added and subtracted. But for this child too, we used visual support. So if he had to respond expressively with an answer because he was not typically verbal, he had an AAC device, that he was either able to use his AAC device if it were programmed or he could hold up because he did have some movement in his right hand. He had a pincher grip, so he was able to show what the answer was. So it was just a way of looking at how he responded in a different way, looking at how he was going to interact with materials and interact with peers. We paired him up with with a buddy in the classroom for peer support, which worked out great because then not only was his peer able to hand him things to continue to work on that pincher grip that he had. He was, there was just such a great collaboration and strengthening of understanding between that partnership. But it really, for that teacher and I, it was just a lot of honest conversation and her being able to say, you know what, I really don't know what to do, but tell me what you think would work. And so we would, we would go back and forth and we would try things. And if it didn't work, it didn't work. We'd try something else. And so it was a constant problem solving. And then even when things didn't work, her toolbox was growing. So if she had another kid in the future with a disability similar to what the student had, she had strategies and tools to pull from. But it really was, and this it's hard to say this too, but it's, it's a matter of having a teacher that is open to the possibility of success. It sounds like you had some training with Jim Knight and instructional coaching. Just the way that you're describing the way you interacted with that teacher sounds like a lot of Jim Knight's instructional coaching philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, yeah, we just started where she was. And it was for she and I, we had a very open and very trusting relationship. And from there, you were able to build and then potentially she was then able to take what she learned and share it with another teacher down the road. So when that other teacher had the issue, they didn't necessarily have to call back on you. They could utilize her as a resource so that we have that. You remember that finesse commercial to tell two friends and who <laughs> they're going to tell two friends. They're going to tell two friends. Isn't and that Yes. Isn't that the way that this job of ours is supposed to be where we facilitate and the people that we train facilitate? But really and truly, that is in in the educational space, we talk so much about building local capacity. That's exactly what that was building local capacity. When that teacher met in her professional learning community, And teachers every other Tuesday morning sat around and had a discussion about how are things going? What do you need support in? Let's talk data or whatever they were talking about. Then the needs of that child became woven into that conversation and it just became a very natural extension. So truly, people started to see her as an expert in, maybe not in that particular exceptionality, but an expert in the ability to think outside of the box. That is one of the keys to 
making inclusion work and building inclusive communities is to know not everything works for kids in the same way at the same time. I don't know when we were on the phone before, if I talked about this and I'm thinking I did, but maybe I didn't. When I was first starting to learn more about online world, one of my thoughts was to have an all-inclusive, almost like an extracurricular activity and have the school, like a middle school, sponsor a color run. And looking at what are some of the things that the kiddos in that life skills class could do and still participate functionally with creating a color run. But on the same token, like I was thinking color run just because it was something that was on my mind. But having kids in the entire school come up with a project that gets done by the end of the school year that all students can participate in be one of those dreams that that would make my day. And so one of the things that you brought to mind as we were talking was this idea I had years ago of how can an entire middle school pull off a color run, but the students do all the work, not the teachers. The teachers, yes, they're there for guidance, but they're not the ones doing the work on the color run. So we didn't talk about this the last time we talked, but I love this idea. I feel like I'm actually putting myself in in an old experience of mine. But here's an interesting connection is, okay, so number one, for all kids working to their strength, it would be great to divide kids up into committees and subcommittees where everyone has an opportunity to work to their strength, but also knowing that if we're working to everyone's strength, that includes everyone. And so I'm working with a parent who has a middle school age daughter and a lot of kids, they were planning a full, a full school, like a field day type sporting event day. And the kids with more complex disabilities were initially left to the sidelines to be, they can be the cheerleaders or they can help pass out snacks or something. But it really was, it was this mom's insistence that everyone be involved. And it really, it took, it's not even that it took a parent, it took one person to start shifting the thinking at this local school level, that it was important to include everyone. And so ultimately what wound up happening is there, there were buddy systems. They paired kids up, they pair them up with a different teacher, but they did what they had to do in order to make sure that if there was a kid with sensory needs, that he had sensory objects with him, that kids knew ahead of time what the schedule was going to be like for that day, that they had everything that they needed in order to be successful, whether it was a piece of equipment, a person, a visual location to be. In order to do a full school event, like a color run, that sounds amazing, it would take a lot of work and it would take looking at strengths differently. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And imagine now if you really took this idea of a color run and really looked at it, you can include social studies. What's the history? How did it get started? It can be science because those colors are created by putting chemicals together. So they're, yeah, it's cornstarch and and food coloring, but still it's putting colors together. So there's some science involved. What's the ratio? There's the math. What are we, how are we going to write it? How are we going to promote this thing? There's the literacy. And then we have all those other gamuts of how are we going to promote it and really pulling in, in all those aspects. It could be really a neat thing. The other idea was my high school had a courtyard. And in that courtyard, the only way to get in and out of there were through the doors that went to the hallways of the school. It was a legitimate courtyard. and. What if we created a garden in there that was wheelchair accessible? So we have some areas that are raised beds. We have some areas that are lower beds. We have shrubs somewhere. We also need to have all kids working on keeping it nice and neat and tidy. So we need that the weeding done almost on a daily basis. We could end things with the whole school working together Plus, buying and purchasing them, how are we going to do that and not incur any expenses for the school? And that was the other part of the color run is how do we do that and not incur expenses? And I think one of the reasons that this thing comes to my mind was a book called Pure Genius. Have you ever read that book? I have not. The gentleman's name is not on the tip of my tongue, but I met him on Clubhouse a couple years back. And he talks about this idea of inclusion and how to include all kids in activities. He started with his class. And one of the things that happened was one of the kids in his class had a family member in the life skills class. I think it was his mom, but because he was always in there, he knew those kids really well. And they actually got the life skills kids involved with them. And they actually started a coffee bar for the entire school that was run by the students, for the students, through the students, no expenses to the school district. It was amazing. So that's everybody. pure genius uh, is something to put in my show notes here. So I have to, I'm writing that down. But yeah, I take this tangent because you really got me thinking about what inclusion really means and how do we make it something that's functional across the board. I'm always thinking outside the box because I'm an OT. I think that's part of like of an OT is we always think outside the box and trying to relate what's functional back to what's academic. There's so much of a fine line there. Uh-huh. I think people forget that sometimes. When you were describing all the different compartments of the color run, the science and the cornstarch and the food coloring and the social studies and all this, I loved teaching like cross content because it was so much more realistic that if we can take something that's fun and incorporate different layers of academia in with that, I think information gets digested quicker. 
I think kids are able to generalize that and really have a deeper understanding rather than having that kind of superficial level. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. Is that basically the definition of project-based learning? Absolutely. <laughs> you Absolutely. Could say it. I'm like, wait a minute. I need to make sure that I'm clear on this one. Um, <laughs> yeah. So for all you guys out there that are OTs and may not have heard that description before, what we've been describing is project-based learning. And I learned about project-based learning again on Clubhouse. I learned so much by being on Clubhouse. It was amazing. And I, there's this biology teacher who tries to do this cross-curriculum stuff. And she was asking me a lot of questions about handwriting with her high school kids. And it was very interesting learning from her. But we're going back to you because we really need to learn a little bit more about what you're doing because I hijacked the conversation, but I wanted to get a clearer picture of what inclusion meant and make sure that I was understanding all the broad and narrow parts of inclusion. So thank you for letting me go off on the tangent a little bit. Of course. So on your website, you talk about learning pods. Would you tell me what a learning pod is? Sure. So learning pods are part of a parent community that I have where parents can, instead of opting to work with me one-to-one, we have learning pod communities where we meet once a week, virtually right here on Zoom. And we also have open office hours where families can come in and ask questions. But it's really, they're really designed to give parents kind of an overview of what learning could look like and should look like for their kids that are not traditional learners or that have some kind of learning difference. So those are really about expanding their their overall knowledge. There's always an opportunity to ask questions that are specific for their child, but it's just a nice, it's a nice place to come together that's positive. It's not complaining. We are absolutely purpose-driven, positive-driven in getting information out there so parents can advocate for their child's learning, that they can feel empowered in what they know. The other piece of what I do for parents is I have like a one-to-one parent coaching and mentoring program where in that situation, we take, we do a deep dive into the IEP. We do a deep dive into reading assessments and math assessments. And we take a look at everything that's academic in the IEP. I'm not a speech pathologist, so I don't look at that. I don't dig deep into that. I don't dig into OT evals, but I do look at how are we looking at present levels of performance and are those connected to goals that are specific? And then how does that relate to specially designed instruction that really targets specific skills? Does all of that really match? And also the big piece for me is, does the child have all of the supports, the classroom assistive technology that they need specifically to be successful in school? So rather than having the blanket set of accommodations of extended time, frequent breaks, instructions read, blah, blah. We know we've been around long enough that we see it's like, check, check. Does your child need this 
or is this impeding them from being more independent or that they're on, on most IEPs? I know it's a federal law that we need to be considering assistive technology for all students, but are we looking at assistive technology only as a communication piece or are we looking at it as a classroom tool piece? And that's what I look at really closely is, are they getting the support in the classroom to be independent? Just to give you some examples of assistive technology. So there can be high-tech assistive technology where a student might have a laptop that has predictive text on it. They might have speech-to-text or text-to-speech. They might have a dictation program. There might be an app that they're using that's going to help them be more independent and not replace reading or writing, but support a child that has a deficit in that area and that is not writing independently yet or is not reading on grade level yet, but we're supporting that practice. So those are just some high level assistive technology. But then there's also things that are considered low tech or no tech. So graphic organizers, reading templates that help kids track down a page, highlighter tape, magnifiers. There's so many tools that are readily available in the classroom, whether they're high tech or low tech. I feel like everything that I just mentioned is readily available in 95% of classrooms across the country. But those are all considered assistive technology, and that needs to be captured in the IEP because as students move from grade to grade, we want teachers to be able to look at that and realize, oh, Sarah needs all of these things in this list, and then Sarah, the student, needs to know how to access them. So in that one-to-one coaching and mentoring situation, it really is really empowering the parent so they understand not just what their child needs, but why their child needs it. And so we do a lot of brainstorming and thinking and just problem solving down and getting into the root of what the problem is or what the concern is. And... In the the 10 weeks in which we work together, I specially design all of the sessions. So it's not, oh, this is the blanket coaching program that I have for everyone. No, I look at it like, like an IEP. An IEP is supposed to be designed for every child. So I design coaching and mentoring for every family because it's all different. And so that's what I offer for parents in a nutshell is the one-to-one coaching and then my learning pod, which is more community-based. You mentioned graphic organizers. And I'm looking right now, that's why I'm not looking at you, looking for what episode it was. There it is. It was episode five of The Writing Glitch. I had a special ed teacher come on and talk with me who has been a very dear friend of mine for many years. And she has a graphic organizer that's electronic that Uh can be utilized for somebody who's having trouble that with just with actual movement of their hands. She was in the life skills class. Okay. Uh So she had those 
severely autistic kids. And no, it was it was the autism class. It was not the life skills class. It was the autism class. But severely limited in their language. So they were doing pictures, but it was all digital. This particular graphic organizer can be expanded to do dissertations. So this very versatile graphic organizer is there. And so I want everybody to think about that and go back to that episode and access that graphic organizer down the road when you listen to this episode. Because graphic org- all graphic organizers don't help everybody. They have to be specific. And one of the things I hate is when you get a kiddo that's using a graphic organizer and the teacher doesn't like that one when they go to the next school grade and then they have to learn all over again. I like what you're doing and specifically saying this particular graphic organizer is for this student. And with graphic organizer, that is such a broad category that I just threw that out casually, but there are hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of graphic organizers. And there's, I mean, there's, and then I also love thinking maps that are graphic organizers that are designed for a specific element. So compare and contrast, they get one cause and effect that's a separate graphic organizer. So kids know, oh, if this is cause and effect, this is the one that I'm supposed to use, air quotes again. But also we can design graphic organizers to meet the needs of kids. It's just a way, graphic organizers, for all you listeners, are just a way to literally organize your thoughts. And I... I create graphic organizers based on somebody's handwriting skills all the time. And sometimes getting it on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper is very difficult when you've got a kiddo who is writing extremely large for their age. (laughs) And that's what has some, those digital ones are nice for that. I was trying to write down all those assistive technologies that you were talking about, the low tech ones. You said something about highlighter and I missed it, but there was one after that and I totally missed that one. But I mentioned highlighter tape. Highlighter tape, yes. That's what I wanted to ask you about. Talk a little bit more about what highlighter tape is. Okay, I love highlighter tape. So it's really tape that is that functions like tape. So it comes in a roll. It's the color of highlighters and you can get a multi-pack of highlighter tape. I wonder if I think I have some. Let me go grab it. Oh, okay. oh, but your listeners can't see us, can they? No, they can't, but that's okay. 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 So I'll just keep describing. So it comes in all the different colors of highlighters. So you can cut a piece of highlighter tape off and stick it on the page to highlight something rather than using an actual highlighter. The beauty of highlighter tape is you can pull up the tape and put it someplace else. So it's, so it's like a see-through Yes, it's like a see-through tape, so you can actually, you can highlight it, highlight what the sentence or whatever you're highlighting, but then because it comes in a multi-pack of colors, you can highlight the, the main idea in blue, you can highlight the key details in yellow, and then if you're doing that with, if the teacher is modeling that for students, or if they're doing just a guided practice, Then when it comes time for students to do it independently, they can pull that tape off, take another article or whatever they're using, and then they can use the tape again. I never heard of that. 
Oh gosh, OTs. If you haven't heard of highlighter tape, we need to find some. So I will see if I can find a link. Hopefully DJ can share a link with me on how to purchase that. Because (laughs) that sounds exciting. (laughs) It's just a different way to highlight. As an example, okay, so there are some teachers that insist that children use a highlighter. They have to use a highlighter where that to me doesn't make any sense. You want students to have their eyes drawn to a certain part of a text. So whether they're using a highlighter, a colored pencil, a crayon, or highlighter tape, or wiki sticks, all of those things are going to draw the child's eye towards what you want them to be looking at. And I can see for basic depending on a child's disability, that one of those could be easier than the other. But to have options. And so for teachers to know that's a possibility. So what I used to say to teachers is you can insist that they use a highlighter and I would hold up a highlighter. You can insist that they use a highlighter or they can learn how to identify the main idea and the key details. But you can't have both because sometimes kids don't want to use a highlighter. It could be something sensory. It could be something with the smell. It could be that it's too big in their hands. There's so many things. It's about thinking about what's the learning outcome. The learning outcome is you want them to identify the main idea and the key details. The the learning outcome is to not highlight. That's not the outcome. That's true. I actually know a person who's allergic. When you open a highlighter or a dry erase marker or a Sharpie or anything like that, she has asthma-related symptoms that can get anaphylactic. So can you imagine the teacher that has that student enter the classroom and they have no idea in their toolbox how to adapt the entire classroom? So here are the teachers, here's a great idea for you on how to adapt the entire classroom if you have that one student who happens to be allergic to something. I don't even know exactly what it was inside those markers, but she was allergic to them. She couldn't be around them at all. That was a teacher that was allergic. Oh, we make accommodations and adjustments for peanut allergies all the time. A a highlighter or whatever scent that was, they can make an adaptation for that. Exactly. Exactly. There was one more thing on your website that caught my eye, and that was this blog post that you wrote called The Author's Chair. And in that, you said, writing instruments do not have to be writing writing utensils. And I went, okay, without reading the rest of it, I'm going to have her elaborate because the title of my episodes are The Writing Glitch, No Pencil Required. So... (laughs) Let's go on and elaborate a little bit together about the author's chair. Okay, so I first of all, I love that you found that blog post because that came from when I was a classroom teacher working in special education and I had multiple students in my classroom that that were not yet ready to hold a pencil. Most of them were first graders and I was working at a school that we needed to do a lot of shifting on the belief that every child is was capable of learning. 
because I had some teachers say, what are you going to do about these three over here? Because they don't write. So they're not going to go in the author's chair. And I said, oh, we found there's other ways to write besides just having a pencil. And we talked about, we would use, I don't know. I remember, I don't remember if I wrote this in the blog, but I had a student that was eye gaze and he would look at different words and we would scribe for him. I had another student that used pictures and she would point to what she wanted to write about and she used visuals and she got so good at writing with visuals is that she started putting verbs, subjects and verbs together, nouns and verbs together. So nice. she was able to do that. We had kids that their most of their writing started as a scribble and then eventually became letters that became an oral story or something. And so I always approached writing in the classroom as writing is just another form of expression. And we want kids to have that pride in themselves to feel independent and amazing when they get up in the author's chair and they sit up there. We had a great big rocking chair and they were teeny tiny in this big chair and they would sit up there and they would read their story and they would hold it out or I would hold it up and they would point to what their story was. And it was just fabulously successful. And they just loved it. And just to watch them grow over the course of a year. And it's it's hard to take the stance of they're not, they don't know how to hold a pencil, therefore they never will. It's a matter of start with kids where they are, foster them where they are, grow that sense of, oh, I love this. I love telling my story and celebrate that for where they are because eventually they get there. They made incredible progress and there's a fantastic curriculum out now that really mirrors a lot of what we did. It's called First Author, Janet Sturm. But First Author is very much aligned to this idea of every child is capable of writing. We're just going to approach them at whatever stage they are. Love it. There's a book that I read called Pop-Up Pitch, actually. It's a marketing book. But he talks about taking an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and folding it. And when you fold it the right way, you can have 10 segments to this thing. And every one of the sections between the folds is part of the story. And you open up the storybook one segment at a time to tell the story. It sounds very similar to the author's chair. Yeah. And they all look different. All the, all the writing looked different. Yeah. But the, the bottom line in that is that kids were able to express themselves in their best way, not in my best way. I love it. I love it. You really were the inclusive teacher while you were still there and have just expounded on that now that you're working for yourself. Is there anything else about what you do that we haven't really talked about? Well, I want to talk about the word inclusive. Because the word inclusive for me is what my professional development is built around. And the idea of inclusion is school communities are not doing inclusion. They're being inclusive. They're creating that sense of belonging 
for all children. And so what I did is I took the word inclusive and I turned it into an acronym. So the acronym for inclusive, and this is how schools design meaningful inclusion. So you have all the pieces. So the I is for instructional accommodations and modifications. The N is for the need for generalization. So kids are able to take what they're learning in an isolated location and generalize that back. So if they're working on a a skill in, in small group instruction, they can generalize that back to whatever it is that they're reading in the classroom. C is for collaboration and building community. The L is for learning outcomes because everyone's learning outcome might not be the same. So we have to look at how that might be different for some students. Let's see, CLU, (laughs) I gotta keep track. The U is for the use of assistive technology, which we've already talked about. The S is for scheduling and specially designed instruction. So scheduling to meet the needs of all your students with all the staff that's included in that. And then specially designed instruction, making sure that we're targeting specific skills. The I is for innovative assessments. So knowing how to assess knowledge without having to make a big deal out of it. Knowing (laughs) knowing you don't have to pull someone over to your desk to, to assess knowledge. So it's learning how to do that like kind of sneak attack assessment and do it on the slide. The V is for visuals and routines. And then the E is for environmental management. So how do we arrange a school? How do we set up spaces that are inclusive for everyone? I read that on your website earlier and I was like, man, she has really gone through every aspect (laughs) of inclusion that's possible. Because, but over the years though, this is really and truly what I've learned. When I had my district position here and I was a coach in elementary schools and then I was a trainer and did all, a lot of training in inclusion and the bulk of our training for inclusion, and this came from the top down, was just knowing how to create an inclusive master schedule and collaborative teaching. Those were the only two elements. And it was not those two pieces for everyone. It was just select schools. And then I started thinking, wait a minute. What about kids? How are we preparing teachers and, again, growing their toolbox so they have a better idea of, okay, that's great that we did training on that, but what is it, what is all this going to look like in my classroom? And why don't I have any tools or things to do with kids? There's so many more pieces to it than that. And that's when I really started thinking too, okay, there's a bigger picture here. We've got to, we've got to create spaces that are, and I use the phrase meaning, meaningfully inclusive all the time, because it has to be meaningful for everybody. There's, and there's a lot of work that goes into creating that. You sound like an OT. <laughs> I'm an honorary one. <laughs> honorary OT, yes. I have a bunch of friends who are like that, that are very much honorary OTs, that they just understand. But I want to go back to that word, collaborative teaching, or that phrase, I should mm-hmm. say, it's two words. I think that is the part of this whole process that I've been working on that I feel is missing 
between disciplines. We talk about collaborative teaching and it might be the instructional coach and the teacher working together in the room. It might be the special education teacher and the regular ed teacher, maybe a para in the room. Why can't related services be part of that collaborative environment? Do you have any feedback on that? I've seen support services be part of that collaborative environment, and it's incredible where I've seen in a a general education classroom during small group instruction, rotations, whatever you want to call it, that the gen ed teacher has a small group, the speech pathologist has a small group, the special ed teacher has a small group, and then there's kids working independently. So I forgot the OT in there. I think OT can be in that part and that whole thing too. Absolutely. But what I was going to say about OT though, (laughs) but what I was going to say about OT, and this is from my own experience. Also, one of my greatest friends is our OTPT coordinator for the district. So we talk about OT and PT all the time. OT, I didn't put OT in with that because OT to me gets, it needs to be woven into what's happening all the time during the day, that OT is not being worked on in isolation just during those 30 30 minutes of use that generic time when they're pulled out or whatever. That the OT is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the OT should be in there as a model, as a consultative support to the gen ed teacher and the special ed teacher there. But I see, and honestly, I see OT left out a lot. I do too. And it bothers me. And I'm slowly having impact. I'm slowly having impact. It's going to take a little bit longer than my dream. But I believe that OT could have a larger role in the schools that they do. And I I would agree with you 100%. And I think, well, most children that struggle with handwriting are not necessarily being recommended for OT because OT and handwriting, that's because kids, yeah, we know. (laughs) But there is a desperate need for fine motor support, for handwriting support in schools. We talked earlier about, I'm not aware of any handwriting program that's used in any school. There's, I know some teachers that used handwriting without tears, but other, otherwise there's not a, there's not a set program. No, there isn't the, there really isn't many programs out there that are matched to the structured literacy mandates that are happening right now either. And that's a concern. And, but I have this vision of OT and teacher in kindergarten being in the same room at the same time and the OT moving through all of the kindergarten and that be her job five days a week that they spend so many minutes a day in each one of the kindergarten classes helping facilitate five days a week that handwriting issue that we don't have the referrals coming to OT for the almost like the unnecessary referrals. Because if kids have that intensive beginning handwriting instruction, 
we'd have much fewer referrals for the kids who truly need it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think it would cut down on kids that are being referred at the end of second grade or third grade. Yeah. But I like the, I like that shift in thinking about how we would use OTs. Yeah. Sorry, everybody. I just got this text message from my son and had my brain totally derailed for a moment. And I have no idea how to answer his question. <laughs> so I'm going to leave that in because I think that also is part of one of the things I, about this podcast is I want people to see that we are real people. <laughs> we have right. real issues going on. It goes back to me being so excited about highlighter tape. I wanted to go up and grab it. <laughs> there, we, there we go. There we go. I noticed on your website that you're doing a free workshop coming up in June. And I was wondering if you were doing something similar to that, more like in September as well. Or do you do some, do you like repeat these workshops that you do? Can you tell us a little bit about some of your free workshops? I do. Absolutely. And I do at least one free workshop a month. The one I'm doing for the end of June is IEP 101. It's basically, oh my goodness, my my kiddo has an IEP. What does this all mean? And we go through and we just break it down and I help parents understand and even teachers to help them understand in layman's terms what this all means. Because it's very complicated and very complex, especially when a child first has an IEP to understand what all of it means and how it really connects back to a particular child. So that is on June 21st. I also do workshops on the importance of assistive technology. We do a little deep dive into that and how that makes learning more accessible. I do a workshop on presuming competence. And then I also have another one. I have a whole bunch of them. I have another one on, it's basically, it's like a think tank style workshop. I have a couple of those where parents come with their child's IEP for reference and we do deep dives into what can work and what doesn't. So I- Would you be willing to do one of those events at one of my master classes? would love to do that. I would love to do that. I love sharing. I love creating slide decks and yes, would love to. Fabulous. Then everybody, we're going to have DJ back doing a masterclass sometime in the 2023-2024 school year. I cannot wait. We'll have to figure out which one. So if you have an opinion about which one of those that she said that you would like her to do, please send me an email and let me know which one you want DJ to do. And if I can just take that a step further, I feel like we've covered so many topics. If there's a topic that we've talked about, let's go ahead and throw that in as an option as well. Absolutely. Beautiful. I could see you doing several masterclasses for us over the next couple of years. That being said, we are about at the end of the time here for this podcast. We're going to 
We usually like to keep these to a half an hour, but we've been going so much. <laughs> we know. have definitely run over time. And one of the things early on is you talked a little bit about environmental access and numbers and number sense. I was look, read the little excerpt from the back of the Math Disconnected book, and I wanted to share number as shape. One of the concepts that we're talking about in the book is that circles geometrically and conceptually are more difficult for kids to understand. And we are taking what's normally thought of as a circle, like a clock or a coin, and we are flattening them out into rectangles and helping the kids understand the number connections or number sense which is like the magnitude, the comparison of one number to another, using rectangles because they're much easier to understand. So one of the concepts that John Lee teaches the teachers is that numbers are shapes. And the shape that she prefers to use is the rectangle. So she takes things that are circles, flattens them out into rectangles. So she takes paper strips that are about an inch wide and utilize, puts the numbers on there, and then to put it back into the circle shape. So if it's a clock, she has zero on one end and 60 on the other end, and then connects the, the ends of the paper together into a circle to give them the concept. So they can lay it out flat to see it visually and then bring it back together into what they see functionally. I love that. I love that. It's also very hands-on too. Yes. Very hands-on. So that chapter is on paper folding when the book comes out. So number as shape and the number sense and paper folding. And she talks about how to divide fractions. One of the other things that John Lee talks about is that we need to teach division before we teach addition. So it's very, very uncharacteristic of a math teacher to be talking about division first. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully everybody got some content out of our conversation today. It has been loaded, oh my gosh, with wonderful <laughs> ideas. So please, after you've listened to this, take time, write a review. Let DJ know that you want her to come back sometime. Let me know how I'm doing with this podcast. Is there something that I'm totally missing the boat on? Let me know. The podcast releases on the second and fourth Tuesday of every month. You can listen to the podcast on my website, The Writing Glitch. My main website is sherry.er.com. And Sam C is my post production producer. He is an amazing college student in Florida area. And he has been amazing at adding some of the little nuances and changing things up just to make the podcast so much better. I just appreciate you, Sam. Thank you for doing what you're doing. And I believe that ends our episode for today. So if you are out there, remember You were put here for such a time as this.